I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Live podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's 60 years in the media. In this episode, the deaths of John Cornell and David Leckie. Mr. Hinch, welcome again to That's Life. How are you? How are you travelling at the moment? Yeah, doing the lockdown, doing lockdown as well as you can be expected. Doing my daily walks, the Goya walks when I can. Um, like a lot of people in lockdown, you spend a bit of time, a lot more time in the kitchen. And uh, and I, um, a couple of days ago, I, I experimented. I I, I cooked myself what I call laid a lot chicken. It's a roast chicken stuffed with Chinese spices and things like that and uh, onions and five spice powder and uh, star anise etc and then I decided instead of throwing it away what's left because I live alone and a whole chicken I, I doesn't would last for a long time but I I can't keep it and I rendered it and I turned it into chicken stock and it became this beautiful chicken stock gel which I then turned into a soup with uh, frozen Japanese vegetables and um, some miso paste and uh, a couple of prawn dumplings. It was beautiful. <laughs> Sounds very nice. <laughs> now, just remind me why you call it laid a lot chicken. Well, it's, it's a, well, when I first put out the book 30 years ago, I called it Hinch's Roast Chicken, Crispy Roast Chicken. But then I was doing the Jeff Chance food show one day and I called it laid a lot chicken and he asked why too. And I said, well... It's such an easy dish for a bachelor to make. It looks very impressive when you serve it. The smells of the star anise and the onions and the uh, five spice powder permeate the house. And if you're lucky, you'll get laid a lot. <laughs> so, so, always, always comes back to that, doesn't it? <laughs> so it became so it became laid a lot chicken, and that's what we've called it for the last 20, 30 years. Oh, there that's uh, magnificent. Now, look, um, COVID is uh, smashing uh, Australia at the moment, uh, but I think uh, people are a bit tired of uh, hearing about it and uh, talking about it. So I thought we might move on to some other big issues that have been happening and uh, we've had some quite significant people in the television industry pass away in uh, recent times. Um, uh, two of them, John Cornell and David Leckie, and I'm, I'm tipping you had some contact with both. Had a lot of dealings with both of them, yeah. Strop was an amazing character. Um, people sometimes forget, I mean, older people will know that he was, he played, John Cornell played Strop in uh, the Paul Hogan show. And, uh, he, and he was very clever. And he discovered Paul Hogan, actually. He was, um, John Cadell was working for the Willisey program, which preceded me on Channel 7. He was working for the Willisey program when he first met Paul Hogan, who was a rigger on the Harbour Bridge, who Willisey made a star. And uh, Hogan uh, became his huge star. And John Cadell became his manager. And between them, they uh, they did the Paul Hogan show, which was very successful. Then they put out um, uh, Crocodile Dundee, the movie, which was the biggest grossing movie Australia had ever done. Uh, to me, John Connell was everything he touched turned to gold. He he moved to Byron Bay with Delvine Delaney, his gorgeous gorgeous wife, actress, and who also appeared in the Paul Hogan show. He started a pub up there. He uh, he was one of the early people to find Byron Bay. 
as, as a wonderful getaway and a place to live, and it's now a, in a multi-million dollar area for Australia. Um, from Paul Hogan's show, uh, he, he went on to, um, he was sitting having drinks one night with uh, Dennis Lilly, and they were complaining about how little money Australian cricketers were making, and they decided to try and, that was the genesis of World Series cricket. And uh, Cornell told Lilly and a couple of other people, I know who could pick this up, and went to Kerry Packer. And Kerry Packer started World Series cricket. They secretly signed all these Australian and South African and uh, English cricketers to this league, the World Series cricket. The first year it was a, it was a bomb, did not work well at all. Only, only Packer publications would publicise it. But then John Cornell went to Mojo, which is a, one of our best known and most successful advertising agencies. And he convinced them, he said, I need a jingle. And Mojo wrote, come on, Aussie, come on. And that became, it actually went to number one on the hit parade in Australia for a few weeks. And that sort of spurred it all on. And, and World Series cricket became amazing and people made a lot of money out of it. You know? But going back to Crocodile Dundee, I've got two, a, a couple of stories against myself involving Strop and John Cornell. I was in New York with uh, Darren James and Paul Barber doing some work over there, some broadcasts. And we bumped into Peter Feynman, who is a famous uh, producer and director at Channel 9, Peter Feynman and Strop, John Cornell. And we're at the Stage Deli, a famous um, delicatessen in New York. And I said to them, hey, what are you guys doing here? And, and Strop said, oh, we're here to just, uh, just search locations for this Australian movie, Crocodile Dundee. And we had a Heineken beer and sandwich, we, and they left, and I turned to Paul Barber, and I said, oh, yeah, right, that, that's going to happen, isn't it? I mean, Paul Ogre's going to make a movie in New York. Yeah, big deal. And, of course, they did, and it became the biggest-selling movie. But that day, they offered me a share in the movie for $5,000. <laughs> and I turned it down. <laughs> and a friend of mine did buy a share in the movie, and turned that $5,000 into $250,000. <laughs> so I will never forget that Heineken at the stage deli, I can tell you. Well, I remember watching Crocodile Dundee and uh, there's that famous scene where uh, someone mugs Paul Hogan, mm. I think in the, uh, the, the railway system, the underground railway system. No, no, it was, it was outside my office in New York, outside oh. the Paramount Theatre building, when the, when the guy pulls a knife. Yes, that's yeah. right. And uh, pulls a knife and then Hogan pulls out his humongous knife and says, that's a knife, and threatens the guy and he runs yeah, away. He says, Call that a knife, this <laughs> is a knife. <laughs> well, going back to World Series cricket, a couple of things came together because uh, Kerry Packer had uh, been trying to take the television rights from the ABC and so Don Bradman was running the uh, mm. cricket uh, in Australia and uh, the ABC had been doing cricket for years and, and they were very loyal to the ABC. But the ABC wasn't paying very much money at all. And, of course, players weren't getting much money. I remember Bill Laurie saying that uh, the guy who opened the gates for him uh, to walk out onto the ground when he went out to bat was making more money than he was playing as a, an Australian test cricketer. So, so everything was ripe for what happened with the, the players. 
and it did change cricket. And and John Cornell was right in the middle of, of he was, all that. He was he was he was he was the instigator of it. Believe me, Cornell uh, and and a meeting with Dennis Lilly. I think he was in London or New York, and somebody else in a hotel room started kicking this idea around that why aren't cricketers getting paid more money? And being a a professional. Cornell was thinking, this could work, something could work. And he went to Packer and convinced Kerry. And I do know the first year was a disaster, the so-called white ball or whatever it was called. Um, it didn't didn't get many big crowds at all. But then um, they convinced governments to put in night lights at, at various mm. sporting places. I think places. that was the change. That was yep. the... The thing people could go to the cricket after work. Yeah, and 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 at the second year it was magic. I mean, people just loved it, and uh, the they wore those coloured pajamas, and they broke every rule that cricket had had in the past. And you're quite right. The ABC was so conservative, and Bradman was so conservative. The cricketers themselves were doing very little. I mean, the only man at that stage who had made a lot of money out of cricket was Donald Bradman, because. Um, the Cricket Australia frowned on cricketers making money. It was an amateur sport, right? Bradman got in a lot of trouble because he was selling, he was autographing and selling cricket balls uh, at one stage. He did a column for, for I think, for the Herald Sun in, in, in Melbourne. Uh, he was making money from writing. He was making money from selling cricket balls. He, um, this is a terrible anti-Don Bradman story. I shouldn't tell, I've told it before. Um, his accountant went to jail for tax evasion and he took the fall for Don Bradman. And Bradman was a very financially astute and clever man. He was a brilliant cricketer, probably one of the best the world's ever seen. But he was also very quick uh, with the tax ball as well, I can tell you. Well, he, he was a stockbroker and, uh, and dislike. I know, I know a fair bit about uh, this because uh, I knew someone who was connected to uh, one of the families that were crick big cricketing families and uh, disliked by the players. Uh, what people don't realise also is that uh, cricket back in the 20s, the 30s, and maybe even into the 40s, were split along religious lines. You know, yeah. who, who were the Catholics, which was the Bill O'Reilly's, and, and who were the Protestants, who, who was, which was Sir Donald Bradman. Um, it, it's quite interesting to, uh, to, to look at, uh, at all that. Um, uh, yeah, and then along very, very dangerous to raise him because he's, he's a sporting god in Australia and for good reason. But the, one of the things, Bradman always seemed so cool and so collected on the field, but emotion finally got to him once and it was the worst possible time it could. It was in his final innings. <laughs> and uh, he, I think he admitted later, he got a tear in his eye and he was out for four. And so his, his career average was 99.4 or 99.6. If he'd hit more than a four, it would have been 100. And, and I do recall that, I, that, that um, another Australian captain retired once and, and, uh, and because he didn't want to beat the, uh, he didn't want to beat the Don Bradman record. Well, that was uh, Taylor. And yeah, it was, he, he yeah. was on 34, three, sorry, 334. And that was Don Bradman's uh, highest Correct. score. Well, wasn't um, it a great? Wasn't it a great moment? To suddenly say, "I'm not going to beat the gods." So he he, he he they retired overnight. He retired overnight on three thirty four, and came back and declared. Yeah. When I was growing up, uh, Darren Don Bradman was like bigger bigger than big. I mean, he was the god mm. of of all sport in in Australia. 
And, uh, you know, I guess the reputation that he had forged during the Depression years and uh, all that sort of stuff, um, uh, even now, you know, when, when he died, uh, well, 15 or so years ago, Damien, who organises our podcast here, it kept, the news came through early in the morning. I was driving them to school and Damien burst into tears. He would have been about nine or ten when, when that happened. So even that generation wow. sort of knew, knew well, all about it. I, I was in Adelaide when Don Bradman died and being me, I, I did tell the tax story because um, all history owes the dead is the truth and it did not go down well in Adelaide, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> well, you've done that a few times about people who have died uh, uh, over the years uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. All history owes... Well, I, I, got, I, got, I got attacked on Twitter just recently because um, somebody said to me about that I'd attack Peter Brock um, and I still believe and did believe then and said so he should not have got a state funeral because Peter Brock was a wife basher. Um, I talked to people at the Box Hill Hospital about his, about his wife, Michelle Downs, and... Uh, he, he was, a, a, he was a, a brilliant man behind the wheel, but he was, to me, he was an awful human being. Mm. Well, I think I remember that happening. I mean, Mike Willisey was also in something like that many years ago. Yes. Um, I don't remember the exact detail, but I do remember that he was embroiled in, 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 in something like that domestic yeah, His ex-wife violence. accused him of, um, of, of violence and... Uh, I have some insight in that because um, a very close friend of his producer, well, a partner of his producer, Jackie Weaver, uh, she was with Phil Davis, who worked with and for uh, Willisie. So I have some background on Willisie as well. Yeah, there was. Uh, back, back, to John, back to John Cornell, though, uh, mm, yeah. Darren. What was he actually doing? What was his background? What was he doing on the Willisie show? Well, well, he was a, believe it or not, I, only, I didn't know all of this, and, but uh, he, Cornell was, was a journalist. And he got a job on the Willisie show, and then, then the rigger from the bridge, Paul Hogan, came down and was doing a comedy skit, and Cornell saw his potential and became his manager. And from there it grew and grew and grew, and there was World Series cricket. He bought that pub in, uh, in, uh, in, in Byron Bay. I just, the other day, knowing I was going to do this, I looked up a commercial he did for the, he owned a brewery, a private brewery up there in Byron Bay, and he and Paul Hogan did a commercial for it, right? And it's quite funny but quite sad because you wouldn't recognise John. Uh, there's Hoag's there and there's John. And the barmaid is this shrill woman and you suddenly realise it's actually Delphine Delaney <laughs> playing a barmaid. And they're talking about the, the, the beer. And poor John, John managed to say, I brewed it, but he was in the depths then of, um, of Parkinson's and I'm told he had Parkinson's for nearly 20 years. And his friends and his family were actually quite pleased or relieved, I don't know what the word is, that he passed because he was, he was doing it tough mm. in the end. I mean, they're not all, people with Parkinson's are not all like Michael J. Fox. They, they, they suffer. Yeah. And one of the great love stories too. I mean, what a beautiful lady Delvin Delaney has been to I, stand I saw Delvin at, at a function at Channel 9 only a few years ago and she's as gorgeous as she ever was, you know. You know? I mean, my, my partner Linda Stoner knows them very well, knew them very well because uh, she 
her physical attributes were were featured many times <laughs> on uh, the Paul Hogan oh, show. Actually, now that you remind me, I I remember that. Yes, because <laughs> there's, there's a fair bit of sort of skimpy bikini sort of. Uh, oh, there skits. was. I mean, it was. It really, really was. I actually, I had to call Linda and tell her John had died. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, stuff you wouldn't get away with these days. <laughs> Polkatrude was the word of the day, I think. So. <laughs> well, we, uh, we, we paid tribute to uh, John Cornell. He was, he was 80. He uh, was ill for a long time. But um, it, it's one of the great stories, isn't it? His story and also yeah. Paul Hogan. Uh, you know, this guy's painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah. And then he becomes bigger than big, not only in Australia, but around the world. Do you know, the day that I became editor of the Sydney Sun and relaunched it, with a new masthead and everything, guess who I put on page one? Uh. Paul Hogan. <laughs> because he was, he epitomised Australia. And, uh, and yeah, I put him on page one that, that, that very first day. Now, listen, speaking of television, David Leckie, who most of our listeners probably don't know, was, I mean, I, I tweeted, when he heard he, David was dead, I tweeted that he's forgotten more about television than most of us remember. Uh, he was that good. He was a chief, chief um, of Channel Nine. Then he quit Channel Nine and became chief of Channel Seven when, and resurrected Channel Seven, which was struggling a lot at the time. He was an amazing man. I mean, he could be an absolute prick. <laughs> he he was totally um, unreconstructed. What, he was that, what, what does that mean, unreconstructed? Well, well it means he uh, he didn't think about political correctness at all. He. Uh, uh, he, he was very blunt and very, at times, brutal. But he was, I, I, I was hosting, he hired me with Packer to work, to host Midday, and he sacked me from Midday eventually. Um, but he was great to work with. He was an amazing, amazing talent. He knew what Australian people wanted to watch on television. Uh, it, was, it was an absolute amazing knack. I'll tell you two quick stories about him. Um, not that good. Uh, I remember, I remember going to the funeral of Jim Wilson's son, little boy, six or seven, who died. A terrible moment for everybody. Um, and coincidentally, I was standing next to David Leckie, and I hadn't seen him since the uh, midday days. Now, a few years before, several years before, Leckie had, um, had contracted um, uh, septicemia. He jammed his hand in his rolling car door, garage door. And I wrote to him, having had septicemia and nearly dying from it in 2006, I wrote to David and he said, listen, I, I shouldn't intrude on your medical advice or on your condition, but I feel for you, but I just want to warn you that septicemia, it's not a medieval disease, it's current and it can kill you. And I wrote to him because uh, Clark Forbes, the program director of Channel of Three AW, his wife got a scratch on her leg on their boat, and three days later was dead. So, and I nearly carked it from septicemia. So I, I was well aware of what the, the, this disease could do to you. So I wrote to David and just intruded and said, "Da da da." Anyway, at the funeral, I turned to him and said, "David, I hope you didn't mind me my writing to you about septicemia." because I just wanted you to know that it could have killed you. And he turned to me and he said, I wish it had. Oh. It just rocked my boots. He said, I wish it had. We're at a funeral and here's a, 
I, I called him a friend or an acquaintance. It just rocked me. I didn't realise until much later, it, it, it confused me. didn't realise a lot later that for years, this most ebullient, public, confident man had suffered from the black dog, from depression, forever. Wow. Well, that's... Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, when you talk about him and, and his character, and, uh, I mean, it's quite often the case that uh, people who, who are suffering from that sort of stuff, uh, uh, power is a big thing, you know. But, he, but, he, had more, he, had more, but he put on more front than Myers, you yeah. know. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. I'll tell you another story, which is not a flattering story for him, but it tells you something about television. Um, the day that uh, he fired me and, and, and cancelled midday uh, was really, really hurt because I, I loved doing it. Um, that night I'm in the mahogany row up there in the bar at Channel 9 with all the executives and the senior producers, right? And Lecky is there holding court, as he did on a Friday night, and suddenly he looks across the bar and I'm on the other side and he shouts at me and Lecky says, Hinchy, why are you looking so glum? And I said, well, you just can my effing show. What do you reckon, you know? And then he said something which stuck with me for a long time. He said, hey, come on, you're still working for the network. You're still hired. You're doing big-time specials for the network next year. And I gave you Peter Meekin as a producer. I didn't give you some bleep bleep dickhead like Fred Nurg. Who he named. Who he named. He named. And now every producer and executive at Channel 9 was in that room and heard that. And I thought to myself later on, um, maybe two months later, they're launching some new program on Channel 9. Right? Somebody said, hey, let's get Fred Nurg to produce it. And the boss says, uh, no, I don't <laughs> think so, because he knows that Lecky doesn't like doesn't him. Lo doesn't like him. Yeah. And now that poor bugger would have had his career stymied and would never know why. And that's the way television worked, you know. Not, now, now not why do you think he, um, he behaved like that in front of all those people to you on that account? I mean, that's a power thing, really. Well, he, he, he was a larrikin and a show-off, right? I mean, I remember the day I had lunch, we used to have lunch quite often at, at the Channel 9 boardroom uh, after I finished midday. And I just heard that Young Event was leaving Channel 9 and going to Channel 7. And I said, well, gee, that's terrible news, isn't it? He said, nah, we're well rid of the bitch. Well, two things about that. One, that he called Young Event a bitch, and two, that, you know, you're having lunch in there. They looked after you guys, didn't they? Oh, they did. oh yeah. It wasn't just a bitch, it was an effing bitch, I can tell you, so... Yeah. Uh, but the, the television those days was bizarre. I mean, when Sam Chisholm, the, the then boss, uh, had his birthday, at Channel 9, they took out some windows at, at, at Channel 9 headquarters in Willoughby so they could send in on a crane a Harley-Davidson motorbike <laughs> as, as a birthday present. It's, I mean, for me, for me... From my birthday when I was at midday, they gave me the most amazing uh, antique book from 200 years ago about wine production. Because you were making wine back then too, yeah. weren't you? 
Yeah. Yeah, out of Indian. Well, it was a particular era of television. I mean, and, and a lot of the TV people were like that. Uh, you know, you mentioned Sam Chisholm. Now, he's another one who... Uh, came from sort of nowhere. He was a shoe salesman or something. And That's right. He had a magic touch with, uh, with television. Because the thing about television, it's not like you're a, you're a professor of surgery or a doctor or something. You don't do 15 years of university to try and get there. You, you, you get there in all sorts of different ways. Hey, you just prompted a thought, a memory. Um, when I owned my house in Turak, which the bank took back, um, I found out some history about it. At one stage, that house was owned by Graham Kennedy, right? And at one stage, a shoe salesman called Sam Chisholm came to that house and to convince um, convince uh, uh, Kennedy how he should buy some shoe polish. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bit of trivia for you. <laughs> Well, there you go. So Sam Chisholm and uh, Ian Johnson, another one who uh, ran, I think, Channel Nine. And he did also run Channel, Channel Nine, 7. yeah. When I when I when I worked there, he was there, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he he was also a, 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 a typical sort of television guy. Uh, people loved him, or they didn't like him. Uh, I was very fond of him. He's, he's very good. Uh, I remember Ron Casey. I remember I met him at the Seoul Olympics many years ago. And uh, he was another one of those wonderful television people. Did you ever meet, meet Ron K Casey? Yeah, I, I knew Casey in Sydney briefly because then he was a radio, an arrogant radio person. Well, no, 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 you're talking about the, oh, the other Ron Casey. Ron sorry, Casey, yeah, yeah. Ron Sydney, Casey, Ron Channel Casey. 7. Yes. Fossil Channel 7, who ran that amazing, hosted that amazing Channel 7 weekend football program for years and years with, you know... The world of sport. World of sport with him and, and and Richards, and it was so antiquated, and yet it never changed, and you were mesmerised by it. It was like watching a telethon every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they'd get there, and you know you'd see the TV camera, and you'd see all the wires, and you'd see the cue cards. It was like not polished in any way. And then the and, wood and chopping all, all, would come all, out. All, all the clumsy giveaways, the hams and the things, and. Well, Bruce Mansfield used to love going out there because he'd, he'd steal the hams and stick them in the boot of his car, <laughs> yes. which wouldn't surprise you. <laughs> well, uh, have we told the Bruce Mansfield story about how one time he was, uh, you know, how 3AW give out, give out all these hams every Christmas, or they used to, and uh, you... <laughs> the talkie talk hams, yep. <laughs> Well, I didn't really want to name Well, guy. I can because I'm getting, you know, because I, I, I got in trouble because I, I, I attacked them once. Uh, anyway, yeah, Bruce Mansfield had gone, I was getting close to Christmas and Bruce had gone home, or supposedly had gone home, and uh, I was giving out hams to people and uh, somebody, I'd given one, left one there for Bruce Mansfield. Well, and I gave it away. I gave it away to a listener. <laughs> yeah, well, the story I heard was because there used to be a a fridge at the old three AW building uh, on the ground floor as you walked in for listeners to come in and collect the hams that they'd won, and Bruce would walk past this fridge to go home. You know, parked his car out the front. He had a beautiful uh, old BMW. Uh, with his white hat on the back, and uh, he'd go past this fridge every night, and he thought. Oh, Obviously, no one wants these hams. So he backed his car up, took all these hams out of the fridge, 
And the story I heard was uh, when they came in the next morning, no hams and listeners wanting to collect their hams, they, <laughs> they went through all of the video cameras because yep. there's security cameras to find out who took the ham, and it was Bruce. <laughs> so, that so. is true. Well, anyway, on the day that, he, that I gave away his ham, um, he turned around out at Ivanhoe and drove back into the city trying to get there fast to pick up his ham, you know, and I'd already given it to a, to a listener. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I, mean I, I love Bruce. We, we oh, he's a wonderful a guy. I we love worked him together too. for a long time. He was on, on, on camera and reading news with my ex-girlfriend, um, Annette Allison, at Channel O uh, when I first met him. But he had uh, deep bloody pockets and short bloody fingers. <laughs> I think would he not, would not shout in a shark attack. Uh, I think they also caught him walking out of the building on CTV with a video machine under his arm. You know, so. <laughs> well, he, I think he, he grew up in the era of radio where you got you got a lot of that stuff. Oh, Contra was Contra was was was, was ran your ran your life, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and and then in the end, it got him too because he was part of the cash for comment. Uh, he was, and and badly so. And uh, the thing that shocked me uh, when when Bruce died, I didn't know he was younger than me. <laughs> True, he always seemed so old. Even when in, he in was way, young, old and conservative. I mean, he, he just he just seemed. It's like we, I used to say that Richard Dixon was born 62 years ago in a blue suit and uh, Bruce, Bruce sort of came to that category. I remember one stage when Channel 10, as it became, wanted to stop him taking home, putting it nicely, taking home the, the, the wardrobe suits. They cut the jackets up the back <laughs> so he could only wear them on television. He couldn't wear them at home. <laughs> Well, they'd give him a jacket to wear to read the news. Yeah, and then and he'd he take would. It home. Well, well, he would just go home wearing what he's wearing and not bring it back. That's right. And they didn't know how to sort of broach the subject with him and say, Bruce, uh, they're not your jackets; they belong to the you know Ten Network. So they came up with this idea that they would split the jacket right down the back, so it was useless to him, <laughs> and he'd do leave you, that there. Do you know that um, speaking of suits? When I got sacked from, from Channel 9, uh, I went home. I was at the farm and pretty broke. I had probably 10 or 15 double-breasted Xenia suits, which would be cost about $2,000 each, which I'd never wear again. Maybe there's still a couple of them in my wardrobe. I'll, I'll give them to the homeless. I mean, it was just, it was bizarre. But that's what happened in, in television. Xenia well, was the brand Paul Keating used to wear. That's right. Well, I think I've told you, I was hosting Midday and... Paul Kitty and I are sitting on the set during commercial break when he was Prime Minister. And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, have you noticed something? He said, no, what? We were both wearing identical Xenia double-breasted suits and the same tie. <laughs> and I mentioned when I came back on air and he said, at least I'm not, we're not wearing R.M. Williams boots, Darren, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I always did. <laughs> yes, uh, Kevin Rudd used to wear R.M. Williams boots uh, too underneath his, uh, his suit. Yeah. Well, I, I wore them at my wedding to, 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 uh, uh, to, to my first wife. I wore them when I, when I escorted Princess Di to a, a film premiere of uh, Burke and Wills in Melbourne. I, I, I wore them for 30 years. I mean, I... I Things have changed. I don't care. And I had Cuban heels to make me look taller. I don't do that anymore. I now wear things. I wear them when I'm doing the Goya walks and when I'm around my house. Things called sketches. 
and they are. And I don't. I, I paid for them, so this is not an unpaid. This is an unpaid commercial. They are so comfortable, um, and I just I, I wear them. What all are the they? Time. A sandal or something? They're, no, no, they're like a little a shoe. Um, I actually, I was thinking of getting something more comfortable than, than boots. And uh, Jackie Weaver said, "Try Skechers." And I've never heard of them. And I, I went into to Maya when I was out on a campaign trail a few years ago, and uh, said to my to Ruth Stanfield, my manager, campaign manager, said, "Hey, I need some more some more shoes. I'm walking around supermarkets and shopping centres, and I, I don't want to wear boots anymore." And uh, I, I spotted what I wanted. They were black, and they were sort of comfortable, and they were not leather. And I bought them, and they only cost about $99. And after I put them on, I realised the brand was Sketches. I didn't even know when I bought them what they were called, but uh, that was them. And I tell you, they are, I have several pairs, one, one to wear when I'm going out and one pair I've worn for months and months during my daily walks. Well, there you go, Sketches. If you're listening, uh, you could sponsor <laughs> our... Uh our, our podcast there. Okay, if so no, like. Tony, an unpaid advertisement. There you go. <laughs> Darren Hinch, oh, right. uh, we have broached many, many subjects and it's <laughs> been, again, fascinating and interesting. Uh, and uh, we will be back next week. We will indeed, mate. Bye-bye. Bye.